If you would, open your Bibles to page 572, or open it up on your app. We're in Isaiah chapter 8. We're starting verse 9, and we're going to go through uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 7. This is the fourth Sunday in Advent, and providentially, our text contains some verses that are regularly used in Christmas sermons. They are the last verses in our passage in chapter 9. The kids just sang these words so wonderfully moments ago. And like our sermon, the past sermon we had in the book of Isaiah, it, um, it contained a Christmas verse as well. And what we saw in that text was that this Christmas verse actually is part of a larger context, that of ancient Israel, which is proving itself faithless towards God. My friends, this message isn't just for those ancient people. It's for you. It's for me. There is this truth about myself that haunts me. The longer I've been a Christian, the the more I see that I take God's grace for granted, the more I see how I lack the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit in my life the more I see how the sinful flesh that still resides in me, how it tries to convince me that a mediocre walk with Christ is just fine. I'm haunted by my lack, but the more I'm haunted by my lack, the more God's grace triumphs over me. Now, there's three reasons why I share this with you. One, it's good for you to know um, that your pastor falls short every day of his life. And two, my educated guess is that you experience this too in your own lives. And three, God wants us to know that, that he is faithful to keep us despite our failings. And it's true, none of us, listen, even after coming to faith in Christ, none of us deserve heaven because of how faithful we are in living for Christ each day. For we fail daily to honor God fully with our lives, right? But what our passage shows us is that thankfully God triumphs over our failure in his abundant grace. In fact, our passage ends with saying that, that with God saying that he is zealous for his grace to triumph over our failure. This, my friends, is a too good to be true truth. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in uh, verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary 
and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs important in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this important word to your people. This world is full of darkness and gloom. Every day it breaks in on us. And yet you have sent your son, the light has broken into this broken world and gives us hope and joy. May we understand more fully this text, what it means to your people. May it give us, uh, may it confirm to us that you are our sanctuary and our hope. 
Amen. Well, the big idea, the big proposition of this morning's sermon is God triumphs over our failure in his abundant grace. We're going to divide our time under two headings that our passage provides. First, uh, we will see that God triumphs in grace for his people by providing a trusting remnant. What is that? We'll get into that. And second, we'll see that God triumphs in grace for his people by the light of the Messiah. In the late 1800s, in the early 1900s, a great liberalism gained a foothold in the major Christian denominations in America. The belief was that you could be a good Christian while at the same time denying the essentials of the faith. Things like the veracity of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, Jesus' death being a literal substitute for our sins, the denial of miracles, especially Jesus' bodily resurrection. In the early 1900s, the battle lines were drawn in the Presbyterian Church, and the wave of denial of essential Christian doctrines, which began as a small creek, eventually became the dominant stream of belief. And not only within the Presbyterian Church, but all the other mainline denominations, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, but within all these major denominations, a faithful remnant remained. Christians whose faith rested on the one true God and the virgin birth of a son who died for the sins of his people and who rose bodily in victory and who will one day return in judgment and restoration of all things. The faithful remnants founded their own denominations. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, is one of those faithful remnants. Now, a faithful remnant is nothing new. God promised a faithful remnant in Isaiah's day. We see in our text that God triumphed over his people by providing this faithful remnant. First, we see that this remnant is set apart by the presence of God. In Isaiah's day, there was a small contingent of people in the land, despite what all the others were doing, that were distinct from what was going on. They were those who believed the Lord's words of promise, and they delighted in the Lord. Verses 9 and 10 describe the world being thrown into chaos of this large-scale war, and these are the words of the remnant speaking. Verse 9 and 10, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. Remember, remember uh, last sermon, Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verse 2, when Ahaz and the people, they had heard uh, that these enemies were coming up to attack, and here's what we read, the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. But the remnant is not shaking in their boots. Why? Look at the end of verse 10. For God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. 
My friends, listen and take deep comfort from this truth. God's desire is to be with his people, God with us and God for us. This is the theme of the entire Bible. And it's true, isn't it, Christian, that the world can be crumbling around you, but when you rest in Christ and his promise to never leave you nor forsake you, you know what happens. Emmanuel, God with you. In the next section, we see that the remnant is set apart by the fear of God. Now, people today would say, should anybody fear God? If you listen to the spiritualists, they will tell you, heck no, God is not to be feared. Forget all those old Christian scare tactics. And while this view would be true if God were made in our own image, but the opposite is true. God made us in his image. He made us to be upright and good and obedient to his commands, to live for his glory and not our own. And the problem is no human being has ever done that. So if there is a God who created us, it is a fearful thing to be on the wrong side of history. So it is right and good to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Healthy fear causes us to draw near to him and plead for his mercy and his grace, which he freely gives. But what about believers? Are we to fear God? No, in the sense that we fear his rejection. But yes, in the sense that we fear not living rightly for God and his glory. Think about it. Like a child loves his mother and father and wants to honor them. And so he fears disappointing them or losing their trust. So the Christian is right to fear God, not just because God disciplines those he loves, because our hearts, they, they beat for Christ and his kingdom. And we want to obey Christ and live for him. And so we should fear not being faithful. In the next section, we see Isaiah describing the Lord's strong hand upon him and warning him not to walk in the way of the wayward people. Verses 11 and 12. For the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Isaiah presents a remarkable dichotomy with regards to fear. The world we live in lives in constant chatter and fear. People hinge their lives to conspiracies, Conspiracy after conspiracy. Mass or no mass, vax or no vax, right wing or left wing conspiracies. We live in fear of global warming, high taxes, QAnon, FTX collapsing, transgenderism, and border crossings. With the 24-hour news cycle and news feed and the blogosphere and social media and Twitter, uh, there is a constant chatter everywhere, right? And because of this, the world we live in lives in constant fear. But not that we don't fear, but the Christian, Christian's fear is properly placed. And so where is our fear? Our fear is with the Lord. Look at verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. 
My friends, the Christian looks not in dread and fear to the darkness and gloom of this world. Instead, she looks in reverent fear and awe at her Lord, who in grace has triumphed over her failure. And what happens when we live our lives glued to the Lord? He becomes, for us, a sanctuary. Look at verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary. See, I'm not making this stuff up. It's just right there. That's good, right? And he will become a sanctuary. That's for us. But for others who don't trust in him, what, is, what do we read? And a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Remember the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they split. Both of them are gone astray. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. To those who give lip service to God, but not their hearts and their lives, the sanctuary of the Christian experiences will instead be a stumbling stone upon which their lives will be broken. But the remnant, the Lord becomes to us a sanctuary. Christian, no doubt you've experienced this, some huge trial in your life, gloom and doom and calamity, it breaks in upon you. And yet the Lord was your sanctuary. You experienced his peace in the midst of your storm. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Isaiah is Alec Moltier. He makes this insightful point. Listen what he says. This is the secret of the unworrying people in a worried world. Fear of the Lord and let him be your fear. The saints are different from the world, which sees a new scare around every corner. See, the true people of God do not fear the conspiracies of the world. Why? Because the Lord is their sanctuary. And so we've seen that the remnant is set apart by the presence of God and the fear of God. Lastly, the remnant is set apart by the truth of God, verses 18 and 19. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Ray Ortland Jr., who I'm indebted to this morning, states, in Ahaz's day, the gospel was not valued. So when Isaiah says in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching, he means preserve this neglected wisdom for a later generation who will listen. The people in Ahaz's day did not want to inquire of the Lord or his word. Instead, they inquired of mediums who claimed that they could gain wisdom by speaking to the dead. Now, some people today go to mediums. They like to hear what the medium has to say. They go to palm readers and tarot card readers, or they look at their daily horoscopes or their birth signs, you know. Should I marry this man? What's his sign? He's a Pisces. No. God says, should not a people inquire of God instead? The answer is yes. 
And then he states an indignant question meant to point out how foolish such living is. Essentially what the Lord says is, on behalf of the living, should people go seeking the dead? The answer is no. Today, the remnant, the church, has the testimony, the teaching, and the truth of God to guide us. So the remnant is set apart by the presence of God, the fear of God, and the truth of God. But the hypocrites in Ahaz's day, the faithless, they chose darkness. Verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because, why? They have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's not a good scene. My friends, the vast majority in Isaiah's day chose to live in fear of the conspiracies going on around them. And so they turned from God as their sanctuary. And so where do they find themselves? Far from God, in darkness and gloom of anguish. Isaiah writes in verse 20 that since they do not run to the teaching and the testimony of God, that they have no dawn. What a remarkable way to describe things. Describing what it is to experience life without God is to have no dawn. Think about it, dawn, the hope that comes with the new day. They do not have it. That's how chapter 8 ends, with gloom and doom and darkness. But chapter 9 opens with no gloom and anguish for the light of the Messiah has come to the remnant. Our second and final point is God triumphs in grace for his people by the light of the Messiah. First, I want us to look at how the light of the Messiah shines into our darkness. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Portland Jr. points out that Isaiah uses these metaphors of darkness and light for oppression and liberation. Think about it. Whenever foreign armies marched over the Fertile Crescent to invade Israel, the first area to come under attack was the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, where the tribes of Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali lived. The Galileans, they knew slavery and despair. But check this out. God turned invasion into mission by making the people of Galilee the first ones to see the light of the Messiah. That is how God ushered in the new era of the triumph of his grace. And think about it. Like the Galileans, 
we make no contribution to it. The ones walking in darkness suddenly found themselves awakened to a new dawn. They deserved the gloom and anguish that had happened to them, but God was not satisfied with that. His zeal brought a savior. Verse three picks up on the spreading of the light. You, the you is God. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. My friends, this light, this triumph of God's grace over our failure has spread throughout the ages and throughout the world, and it has come to us, has it not? And notice how great this joy is for those who are experiencing the light of the Messiah. They rejoice as with joy after the harvest or after a battle is won and the spoil is, div is divided. I get that. Oh, you can have that. Wow, this is great. Okay. All right. Maybe that isn't a good way to look at it for us today. Today, think about the joy of the Super Bowl champions in the locker game right after the game. Do you have this joy? Earlier we sang, O little town of Bethlehem, where we sang these lyrics. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Jesus is not just a light one you can pick and choose out of other lights, whatever you find that can help you. No, he is the everlasting light who shines into the darkness, gloom, and anguish of this fallen world, your world. All the hopes and fears of all the years, including yours, are met in him today. Remarkable, right? Do you have the wisdom to look to Christ as your everlasting life? Will you trust him to deliver you out of fear and into hope? That's why he came. In the final section, Isaiah moves from the light of the Messiah shining into our brokenness to the reign of the Messiah who rules over darkness. Verses 4 through 7 describe how this miraculous joy is breaking into the world. A liberator is fighting for us. Three times Isaiah uses the word for. Verse 4 has the first for statement. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. My friends, this is language of being set free from oppression, like, like Moses setting the people free, or better yet, like Gideon in the book of Judges, which is what this is in, inferring. Gideon was a liberator, a deliverer, who defeated the people of Midian. He delivered the northern tribes of Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali. And the victory was, was wrought by a sudden birth of, burst of light. But Isaiah is looking ahead to an even greater liberator 
in verse 5, we see that, that his victory brings an end to all war and all strife forever. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Every mechanism, my friend, for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. Notice the passive voice used in this phrase, will be burned as fuel for the fire. It highlights that this victory is not our accomplishment. Once again, Ortland writes, we step onto the battlefield after the victory is won, and all we do is celebrate. Now the four statements continue to build until this last one. Up to this point, we don't know yet who this liberator is. But in verse 6, he's made known. He's an unlikely liberator. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about it. God's answer to everything that has terrorized us is a child. Assyria was one of the biggest bullies on the face of the earth. Every generation has its bullies, right? We have them. Just think about it. What's on the news feed? But think about this. God's answers to all the bullies of all the ages isn't to, to become a bigger bully. <laughs> His answer is Jesus, born as a child. God in, God's answer is in sending His Son is that weakness overcomes power, foolishness compounds wisdom, confounds wisdom. Jesus came on that first Christmas day as a weak and vulnerable baby to parents of no account. But he is none other than God's eternal son and savior, the only true liberator. And so how do we respond? Well, once again, my friend Ray Orland Jr., I've been in his class on Isaiah, so I feel like I can quote him a lot. As the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As mighty God, he defends his enemies easily, defeats his enemies easily. Let us hide behind him. As everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we're still enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. And why should we follow him and hide behind him and enjoy him and welcome his dominion? Because all of history is heading in his direction. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, that's the messianic language that points us to Christ. To establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Obviously, this day has not fully come yet to us. This is another one of Isaiah's promises that has a two-stage fulfillment. The first stage, yes, the light of God's grace has rested fully on the face of Christ, his son, who was born 2,000 years ago, and Jesus' death on the cross means that God's victory over our failure and our sin, it is complete. We need not wait for Jesus' return to experience that victory, but we do wait for a day when sorrow and sadness and darkness and gloom and anxiety are gone for good. And so having this scripture, it enables us, it empowers us to live like the remnant we are. So this morning we've seen that God has a way with remnants. In a hostile world, God in his grace secures for his glory a faithful remnant. That's us. He triumphs over our failure and draws us in as our sanctuary where we're set apart by the presence of God and the fear of God and the truth of God. And we saw that God triumphs in grace for his people by the light of the Messiah. The light of God's triumphant grace has shone and is shining into this dark world. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ, in Christ alone. Have you seen the light of Christ? Have you come into this light? Have you experienced his grace and truth? It's important that you do. Why? For all of history is moving towards Jesus and for Jesus. His government is increasing with each day. And one day he will return to bring its final establishment. As the book of Isaiah, or Revelation says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun in the sky. How is that possible? What's going to happen? Why? Because the Lamb himself will be our light. This is the grace of God that has triumphed over our failure. And this future is certain to come. Why? For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you care more for our salvation than we do. That you care more for being our sanctuary than we do. For sending your son to be an everlasting light and that he triumphs in grace over our failure each and every day. May we delight in this truth as the victors delight over the spoils of war. Jesus, you've battled for us and you've won. And we now stand on the field rejoicing. Amen.